millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Changing world. Nā mihi nui and a big welcome to our changing world, ko Alison Balance tēnei. Carbon Watch New Zealand. It's a collaborative project to measure our greenhouse gases, where they are coming from and where they are going to. Carbon Watch began in 2019. It aims to build the world's first complete national-scale picture of a country's carbon balance by measuring greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Niwa atmosphere and ocean scientist Sarah Mikulov-Fletcher describes it as giving us a bird's-eye view of our carbon balance. To kick the story off, here's Sarah, reminding us how the greenhouse effect works. Radiation from the sun comes to the earth, and some of that radiation is reflected back out into space. Some of it's absorbed by the earth, but some of it also is absorbed by gases in the atmosphere. And that's, that's the greenhouse effect. And it's a natural phenomena that was already occurring long before we started adding CO2 to the atmosphere. If we didn't have the greenhouse effect at all, it would be far too cold on Earth's surface for us to live here as we do now. But as we start adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere that absorb more and more of that radiation and trap it here at the surface, then we start to raise the global temperatures and also shift or rearrange the way that climate patterns behave. When it comes to greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the biggest culprit is, of course, carbon dioxide. And this is something that New Zealand has been interested in for a long time. New Zealand is home to the longest-running, continuous carbon dioxide measurements in the Southern Hemisphere, second only to Hawaii over in the Northern Hemisphere. Measurements began here 50 years ago. They were set up by atmospheric scientist Dave Lowe, who worked for many years at Niwa. Atmospheric carbon dioxide levels before the Industrial Revolution were 280 parts per million. Dave vividly remembers the first measurements he recorded at the Bering Head Clean Air Station on the north side of Cook Strait near Wellington. It was in December 1972, and yes, it was very exciting. We used chart recorders back then, and, and you saw this just this straight line which meant that you were measuring an incredibly stable CO2 concentration, and it was around 323 parts per million. Now it's 410, so in my working lifetime it's gone up 90 parts per million, and that's the whole of the Earth's atmosphere. It's a huge hit on the chemical and physical properties of the Earth's atmosphere, the only atmosphere that we have. Dave was just out of university when he first heard about global warming and the role that CO2 plays. I'd just graduated with a physics honours degree from Victoria and someone said, there's a job out at the DSIR for you and I went out and it was the end of 1969 and the director there 
told me about the possibility of carbon dioxide increasing the atmosphere and it leading to uh, damaging effects on the Earth's environment, and I was horrified. He offered me a job on the spot, and we agreed that I would start after Christmas, so right at the beginning of 1970, I had a job working on a hydrology project, which was terrible. I decided to quit, but where that hydrology project was being run, there was a group there had just arrived from America, and uh, they were planning to set up the very first carbon dioxide measurements, continuous measurements, in the Southern Hemisphere. And so the director said, Dave, you can't leave. The Americans are very interested in you. How about you work with them? And so that's how it all started, and that was 1970, it's now 2020, an extraordinary half-century ago. I can't believe it. We, speaking globally, were already collecting carbon dioxide measurements in the Northern Hemisphere then at that time? At that stage, there was only one set of continuous measurements being made, and they were being made in the Northern Hemisphere, and they began there in the late 1950s on a mountain top in Hawaii. And they were run by a guy called Dave Keeling, who was the first person to prove beyond doubt that our appetite for fossil fuel combustion was actually leading to carbon dioxide increasing in the atmosphere. So he showed that, and he then wanted to go on and find out whether it was a worldwide phenomenon. In particular, was it happening in the Southern Hemisphere? The reason he wanted to know that was he could see already that half of the emitted carbon dioxide wasn't in the atmosphere, it had gone somewhere else, it was, it was missing and he surmised that maybe it was being absorbed in the southern oceans. So that was the idea, set up a site in the mid-latitudes of the southern hemisphere and try and figure out what the differences between the two stations were in order to do some calculations and figure out was the sink, was the missing CO2 actually going into the oceans around New Zealand. So where did you decide to start measuring carbon dioxide here? They decided, it was the American group, decided at a place called Macra, which is on the west coast of the North Island, uh, a little bit north of Wellington. And uh, the first equipment was set up there. I was involved with that. And it turned into a bit of a shambles because the American in charge of the project, um, he and Dave Keeling had a big row and he left the program and the two American technicians who were out, one of them was a keen fisherman and the other one was a keen hunter and they were just off hunting and fishing so here was this young 23 year old graduate trying to make sense of all this amazing stuff and uh, the measurements just weren't doing what I would have expected. They appeared to show a large diurnal variation which was very puzzling and it wasn't until Dave Keeling actually sent out a spy. And he was Dave Keeling's representative and a scientist who really knew what was going on. And so suddenly I had all of this information uh, that helped me through a very difficult period. And these measurements that you didn't understand, this wide diurnal variation, was that real? 
Yes, absolutely, it was real. So the spy went back, his name was Peter Gunther. Within about two weeks, I received my first ever international phone call from Dave Keeling. You imagine a 23-year-old Kiwi kid from Taranaki, I was amazed. And he led me through a bunch of steps, and we showed very quickly that the diurnal variation was caused by vegetation. It was a, um, a very fertile ryegrass and clover paddock between the sampling mast and the sea. And so, um, particularly during spring weather, photosynthesis just sucked down the CO2, and then it was released at night. So it seems such a simple explanation now, but I was on my own. No one could tell me what was going on. So the site was no good for making what Dave Keeling referred to as baseline measurements of the CO2 concentration in the Southern Hemisphere. So he charged me with finding another site, and uh, that was Bering Head. So what did you like about Bering Head? Bering Head, first of all, I didn't like, but I couldn't see any alternative. The thing is that to do these baseline measurements, you want air, which has come from preferably a long way over the open ocean, so well removed from sources and sinks of CO2. Bearing head, very definitely during a southerly wind, the air comes from well to the south during particular events. We call it descending air from around 55 south, bringing in this incredibly well-mixed air, which gives you CO2 signals which are brilliant for making an estimate of what is going on in the southern hemisphere. What I didn't like about Bering Head was that only occurs around 30% of the time. The rest of the time the air is coming from the north and it's affected by paddocks and sources in Wellington. But during those southerly wind events the site is absolutely brilliant for these baseline measurements. What was really needed were continuous measurements. So you you got a lot of data and you were able to track it seasonally. So you go right through a year and collect a lot of data representative of the Southern Pacific. The reason being that you wanted to look for a long-term trend, was the CO2 increasing, and was there a seasonal cycle, an annual cycle? This was all unknown back then. So we had to have equipment out there that actually made the measurements in situ. But on top of that... The data were checked by taking discrete air samples, and these were in what were called keeling flasks. So uh, a glass flask, which was evacuated, and you stand at the edge of the bearing head cliff in a howling southerly and open up the flask, and then the vacuum sucks in an air sample during the southerly. And the instructions are that you carefully open the valve and wait for the whooshing noise to stop as it sucks the air sample in. Well, that's a bit of, a, bit of an issue out at Bering Head during the southerly in the winter because your hands are frozen and these valves, they're, they're greased valves and they're just locked solid. So we came up with the idea of going into a concrete building which is there, using a hairdryer to heat the valve and then quickly running outside before it froze up again and then opening the valve. And, of course, you couldn't hear the whoosh because of the (laughs) noise of the wind. 
What were the first measurements of CO2 that you made out there? I bet that's seared into your memory. Um, absolutely. It was in December 1972. And what was it? The actual value was around 323 parts per million. The lowest measurements I saw were 321 to 322 at Macra. Now it's 410. So in my working lifetime, it's gone up 90 parts per million, and that's the whole of the Earth's atmosphere. Gordon Brailsford is another long-time measurer of atmospheric greenhouse gases. And what were the CO2 levels when he began work at Niwa? I started work at about 347, uh, 1987. Yeah, so it has changed dramatically over that time. And what's interesting too is it's not a linear process of increase, it's, it's accelerating in terms of its increasing uh, abundance in the atmosphere. So it's difficult to to sort of put into words the, the fact that, you know, in the past you, you sort of knew that we were only increasing by a bit under one part per million a year in New Zealand, but now it's, um, we get regular years that are that double that. The keeling bottles, the, when opening those valves in the, in the, to the teeth of a southerly and then sucking air in, what do you do with that air once you've got it? We collect those and we send them back to the US and they analyse them for gas constituents there. We also have a whole programme of flask measurements where we're collecting air and then measuring it in the laboratory here. And the, the purpose of that is that it's one thing to know what CO2 is doing and then the sophisticated models that Sarah has. So we, you have a concentration and you have a model that says what might be happening, but we have lots of techniques that we can use to identify what processes that gas might have been involved in. And so by bringing back that air and looking at the other gas constituents, and so maybe is there a bit of elevated carbon monoxide in the sample might tell you whether there's a bit of an urban signal, or by looking at the isotope composition of the, the gas of CO2 might tell you about some of the, the interactions that's been involved in. So while we've got the, the measurements, the in-situ on-site measurements, the flask measurements tell us a lot more about sort of background history to, to that year as well. And the Keeling bottles that you sent off overseas, are you continuing to do that method because that way it's always been collected like that so you know it's comparable to what you've collected before? Yeah, it's a bit like that but it's also within our atmospheric community internationally we all are obliged to make more than one measurement and work with at least one more laboratory to make sure that what we're measuring isn't drifting off relative to everyone else. So we have uh, flask programs with several laboratories overseas where they're measuring what we measure and we keep each other honest. So in the time that we've been recording CO2 out at Bearing Head, I imagine how we've done that, our ability to do that has changed a lot. Yeah, absolutely. So the original instrumentation was not designed for atmospheric measurements, but now we, we've got instruments that are a lot more stable and a lot more precise and so that makes our job a lot easier but also some of the instruments uh, use a lot less power so we don't even need to put them on on mains uh, to run them for power so we can run them off grid so this is allowing us to make observations in all different conditions all of the time and also to then deploy right throughout New Zealand so instead of just looking at that baseline air coming off the ocean we're then able to look at what's coming off a forest or what's coming off a city 
and do that really effectively, develop a whole, whole network of new laser-based instruments that are um, really precise. Yeah. How many sites are you working at now? We have three sites operational at the moment within the Carbon Watch project. Uh, we're looking at deploying another seven, so you know it's a really big expansion. So Bearing Head's one site, where are the other two that you currently so have? So we've got one at the Niwa site at Lauder in central Otago and one in uh, central North Island at Mangakakaramea. So Lauder's pretty much dry grassland. What's your central North Island site like? Well, we, we get to see all of the planted forests up there, so Kayangaroa and, and all of those big planted forests. But these stations see processes that are happening happening a long way away, so you know, at least 100 kilometres away you, you get visibility. So that's the, the neat thing about having a network. You start to get overlapping between the stations and that helps to validate some of the work that Sarah does with the modelling because they reinforce each other. The wind's always changing. And so one station, if you've got a little bit of elevation, one station can tell you stories about all different parts of the region. But if you know a lot about how the air arrived at each point in time when you have a measurement. So it's not that you have a site in a place and it tells you just about that place. You have a site in a place and it tells you about every place that the wind ever comes from when it comes to that site. Sarah is a climate modeler. What you're doing as a modeler is you're just writing all the best equations we have to describe how we understand the world works and you're letting them play together. Sarah's modelling is developing a top-down picture of our country's carbon balance, knowing where the CO2 comes from, the sources, and where it goes to, the sinks. We have a pretty good idea, at least on global scale, how much CO2 we're putting in the atmosphere in the first place from fossil fuel emissions, from economic data and about how much fuel is bought and sold in different places, and from basic combustion numbers. And we also know really, really well how much of that carbon stays in the atmosphere because we have these atmospheric observing sites all over the world. And so from those two pieces of information, we know that about half of the CO2 we put in the atmosphere stays in the atmosphere, that about half of the carbon is absorbed by sinks. About half of that ends up in the oceans and about half of that ends up in the terrestrial biosphere. And this is something that you're measuring as part of the Carbon Watch project. Can you tell me about that project? Dave talked already a little bit about the fact that they chose the Bering Head site to be able to measure that background signal. And when you've got air screaming over the ocean in a southerly, as we in Wellington know very well, you're getting this air that feels like it came right off the southern ocean, <laughs> and because it did, right? But what I do is I take those measurements and I compare them with measurements from when the wind was coming from the other directions, when the wind was coming from different parts of New Zealand, not only at Bering Head, but at a network of sites across the country. And as the air moves across the land, it either picks up or loses carbon based on whether there are emissions or sinks underneath that, right? And so I use a very sophisticated model to estimate exactly how much carbon was absorbed or emitted from different regions. It's called a Lagrangian model, but what it really does is that it hops backwards in time along the wind path and tells us a picture of all of the places that the air arrived from at a point in time when we have a measurement. 
there's two layers to the model, really. The first layer is NIWA's weather forecast model, which we have run nationally at one and a half kilometer resolution. That's a really special thing that New Zealand has, that high resolution weather forecasting modeling. It tells us a lot about how the winds were blowing, and it brings in and ingests all kinds of different weather data from around the region. Then, in addition to that, I take a little model, a little cheap model, that sort of backtracks along the winds. And it models how the air would have come before it arrived to the station, including both what the winds were doing and some different atmospheric mixing and dispersion processes. So do we understand that really well, or is this revealing all sorts of surprises? Oh, it's revealing all sorts of surprises. Such as? The biggest surprise from our initial pilot study was how much carbon was being absorbed in the South Island. We found that there was a large amount of carbon being absorbed in the southern half of the South Island. In fact, it looked like Fjordland. There's a lot of forest in Fjordland. There's a lot of forest in Fjordland, but it was very surprising that that forest might be taking up a lot of carbon. And why is that? For two reasons. One reason is that the traditional thinking is that forests take up a lot of carbon when they first grow and in their early years, but as they become mature forests, they come close to an equilibrium-type state where they're not absorbing or emitting on balance very much carbon, at least not over long periods of time. So Fjordland is mostly, it's protected forest. It's mostly mature forest. And then the second thing is that the traditional thinking is that exotic trees grow faster than indigenous trees. And so the classical thinking is that, in New Zealand at least, has been that exotic forests are going to absorb more carbon than indigenous forests. But Fjordland is mostly indigenous forest, right? And so the idea that these mature indigenous forests might be absorbing carbon like quite a lot of it, for reasons you know we don't yet fully understand, is an exciting and radical one. So the next thing is to be deploying sites all over the country so we can understand the next questions, right? The next questions are, is this something that's special just about Fjordland? Is it something that's special about our indigenous trees? Because if it's something that's special about our indigenous trees, that opens up new doorways for more sustainable ways that we could offset our carbon emissions with forest planting compared to just planting exotics. Has this been seen in other places in the world with old-growth forests? The only other place with old-growth forests that there's a large amount of evidence for a sustained sink from a mature forest is in the Pacific Northwest of of the United States. So a study that brought together lots of field sites around the United States showed that forests in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, which is actually where I'm from, were absorbing carbon still at 80 to 100 years after planting of a similar magnitude to what we're observing in Fjordland. So that's very interesting because the climate's not totally dissimilar, right? That kind of moist, temperate climate. But we still don't fully understand the processes or how wide-reaching that is. That has actually profound implications for New Zealand's billion tree policy. It does. It's too soon to action those. We need to have enough data from the sites we're adding to understand if that's something special about Fjordland and the climate there, or if it's something special about our trees that we don't understand yet. But we're also looking at other types of questions as well. So, you know, for example, we'll be looking at some plantation forests with the Lake Topo and Lake Rota Ira Forest Trusts. And we're partnering 
with the uh, Rokumara Paimanga Recovery Project in East Cape to look at um, whether you can increase your carbon uptake from trees through pest eradication in Rokumara forests. Where they have a real issue with possums, don't they? Shocking issue with possums. And the iwi there have led the development of this tremendous project to do pest eradication, and we'll be there to look at what the carbon cycle implications are of that alongside them. Forests are just one of the terrestrial ecosystems Sarah's work is looking at. The other two ecosystems that are really important to New Zealand's greenhouse gas budget are urban environments, and that includes you know, both emissions from human activities, but also urban land management, especially because New Zealand has a lot of really green cities, and then pasture, right? So pasture and grasslands, which is a big part of our economy. And there's two parts to that, really. There's the part that's about the emissions from methane, the other greenhouse gas, and we're looking at that. But then there's also the exchange between the atmosphere and the grasses themselves and pasture and whether better land management could impact the amount of carbon exchange between the grasslands and the atmosphere. Global warming and the role of greenhouse gases is a complex puzzle. Here's Dave again. There's a number of gases that affect what's going on, the atmospheric, uh, physical and chemical properties. Uh, CO2 is just one of those, and methane is another one. But in terms of radiative forcing or, or, the, or the temperature of the earth increasing, the interesting thing there is it's actually not the CO2 itself and the methane that's important. It's the fact that those two gases actually drive water vapour. Water vapour is by far the strongest greenhouse gas and it's, it's present at the percent level in the atmosphere. And the issue with water vapour is that as the temperature of the atmosphere increases, there's an exponential increase in the amount of water vapour that it can hold. And, and that's bad news for a lot of reasons. Not the least of, of it is, is the flooding events, which we know are increasing. But it's also bad news because it really increases the way that the, the atmosphere warms up. So it, it's like a guitar amplifier. You have a guitar that puts out a very, very small signal. You put that into the amplifier, that signal is amplified. So it's, it's like the CO2 and the methane and these other trace gases are amplifying the effect of water vapour. Half a century ago, Dave was horrified when he first heard about greenhouse gases and the possibility of global warming. After 50 years of recording atmospheric carbon dioxide levels steadily rise... What is he thinking and feeling now? I have a range of emotions. Frustration is certainly one of them, and deep anger is another one. Because we could have done this. Human beings have the tools to sort this problem. We don't have to run an economy using fossil fuels. We know how to run sustainably. We know how to produce energy sustainably, transport, all the rest of it. It's all known. If there's one thing the COVID-19 pandemic has shown us is that human beings can listen to scientific advice in some countries, have strong leadership which is driven by the population. We know how to do this, but the will hasn't been there. Uh, We've been mired in political dramas, which to me, uh, trying to talk to politicians is like walking through treacle. It's so slow and ponderous, and yet all the time uh, I'm buoyed up 
talking to engineers and scientists and knowing, hey, we know how to do this, we can solve this. Now it's all about urgency. We really are facing a climate emergency. This message has to get through to the policy makers. The, the scientists have been talking about this for literally decades. Now we're at the stage where this particular decade, the 2020s, in order to get down to net carbon zero, which by 2050, which is what we have to do to avoid dangerous climate change, we're going to have to reduce every year our carbon emissions by around 7 to 8 per cent, thereabouts. This year, 2020, uh, due to COVID-19, it's projected that there will be a 7 per cent drop. Compared to 2019, we dropped 7 per cent, which takes us back to around 2010. So we have to do that every year from now on. This is urgent and this message has to get through to politicians worldwide because it's now only a concerted political action by all countries of the earth that is going to help humanity get on top of this thing. Thanks, Dave. Dave Lowe is an atmospheric scientist who worked for many years at NIWA. Sarah McAuliffe Fletcher is an atmosphere and ocean modeller, and Gordon Brailsford is a senior technician. And they are both at NIWA working on the Carbon Watch New Zealand project. On Our Changing World next week, I'll be visiting GNS Science to hear about another part of the Carbon Watch project and find out what grass can tell us about carbon dioxide. If you'd like to listen to tonight's story again, just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Keep in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter where we are RNZ Science, or you can email us at ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz. Thanks for your company. I'm back next week, but for now it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marier. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.